Romans 11, starting at verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they did not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on all. O oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor, or who has given a gift to him that he may be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And I want to say, um, right up front, I want to say that this is a passage that has some tricky bits at the start, an amazing burst of praise at the end. And all week I've been worrying that we're going to get so bogged down in the early stuff that you zone out and don't make it to the praise. Um, so please uh, do your best from your side of things to, to kind of stay tuned in with me. I'll do my best to keep things clear. And let me pray for God's help most of all uh, that we would join Paul at the end of this evening in praise and wonder. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray very much that you would help us to understand you better and adore you more. We pray that you would help us tonight to marvel at your mercy and your wisdom and your grace and your sovereign glory. And please would you help me not to get in the way of that, but to help it. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, tonight we're coming to the end of another major section in Romans. So chapters 9 to 11, and actually the end of the main theological argument of Romans, chapters 1 to 11. This is a kind of climactic night. It's a conclusion. It's great having a few people in the building for it. Um, From now on, chapter 12 onwards, the book's going to get really practical, down to kind of ground level. And we're actually going to pick that up after Easter. On Sunday mornings, actually, we'll we'll look at um, some of the kind of therefore, this is how to live. It's good timing, actually, in God's providence, that just as we're allowed to get back together, we're going to be looking at what Romans tells us to do together, how to love each other radically in a kind of gospel-centered way. And so we're going to get to that, but tonight is our last chance to grapple with this amazing plan that God's been unfolding, this plan of salvation, this plan that weaves together the history of Jewish people and non-Jewish people together to the praise of God's glory. Now, I also want to say up front, there are a couple of verses in here that sincere Bible-believing Christians have different opinions about. Actually, I've had different views about um, some of the things in verse 26, and even this week I've been grappling again with them. So I'm not expecting everyone will agree on every detail. But I do just want to kind of say up front, what do we do when we come to a controversial bit of the Bible, a bit where there's some controversy about quite what it means? I think, first off, we need to ask, what kind of controversy are we dealing with? It is inevitable that sometimes the Bible will say things that we struggle to get our heads around, God is bigger than us. Sometimes it's, it's a struggle to understand for sure what's that verse saying. And verse 26, uh, the phrase, all Israel, I think is one of those examples. Uh, it's been talked about for hundreds of years, and, and there's still different views amongst Christians. But there are other controversies where the Bible's really clear. We just don't like it. For example, Scripture is very clear, we saw it in Romans 10, that Jesus Christ is the one name by which people can be saved. Calling on the name of Jesus, having faith in him alone, it's the only way to be saved. But of course, lots in our world do not like that. It's clear, but it's unpopular. And so, faced with that controversy, we've got to pray that our hearts and our courage would, would line up with what God's word says. What about this example? Slightly trickier. What about God's sovereignty? particularly in salvation. See, Romans 9 was very clear that salvation depends first and foremost on God's choice to save people, God's election of individuals to salvation. He's the initiator. He's the sovereign one. As we sang, salvation belongs to the Lord. We don't start saving ourselves. That's clear in the Bible, but that one is harder to get our heads around. We think, how can that fit with humans being responsible, for example? Or to get our hearts around, because it is deeply humbling that actually all the glory goes to him and nothing to me. Nevertheless, though, it is clear. We can't just ignore the bits. We can't just say, well, I like chapter 10 of Romans, but I don't really like chapter 9 or chapter 11, which is more about God's sovereign salvation. Actually, I think probably the danger I'm most worried about tonight when you come to controversies is to get so focused on the difficult detail that we miss the main point of the passage as a whole. Just look at verse 25, where our passage starts. We we had a long reading just to give us a run-up, but we're starting from verse 25 in terms of tonight. Verse 25, it's really clear what one of the applications tonight should be. Verse 25 of chapter 11, lest you be wise in your own sights. 
That's how our passage begins. And then the passage ends in verse 33 to 36 with just this explosion of praise of God, a a burst of doxology, a, a kind of wow, wow, wow. Just look at him moment. What an astonishing, amazing, wonderful God we have. And put those two bits together, the start and the end of our passage, and that is the the dual purpose of Romans 11. Be a lot less impressed at ourselves and a lot more impressed at God. Think a lot less of my wisdom and realize his wisdom is unfathomably, immeasurably great. Especially if we're not Jewish. We've been seeing, and we saw last week um, from verse 18, verse 20, that if we're Gentile Christians from a non-Jewish background, we especially should be not proud, should have a smaller view of ourselves and a bigger view of God. We're not wise, he is. So let's dive in then. That's where we're going, that's where we're going to land. Um, God willing. Um, and you'll see there's an outline in the insert, um, or you can get it uh, from the Zoom link or below the video on YouTube if that's where you're watching in from. Um, we've got two main points, and then that burst of praise. So, firstly, mystery revealed, that's verses 25 to 27. Then, mercy received, verses 28 to 32, before that burst of praise. So, then, first, firstly, mystery revealed, verses 25 to 27. Now, what does Paul mean by mystery here? Well, as usual in the New Testament, a mystery is something that was genuinely there in the Old Testament, but only becomes obvious once Jesus arrives. It's only kind of fully revealed with the coming of Jesus and the gospel. So much so so clear. The big debated question is, what exactly is this mystery that Paul wants us to know about? On the outline, you'll see I've described it as God is saving all his chosen people in an extraordinary way. And actually, whatever your view is, that's a summary we can agree on. God is saving all his chosen people in an extraordinary way. The key verse here is verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. In some extraordinary way, God's going to save his chosen people, all Israel. But the million-dollar question is this. Who are all Israel? What does it actually mean? What's that phrase referring to? And I'm going to give you um, briefly three options. Um, So firstly, uh, does all Israel mean all Jewish people, all through the ages, who will be saved on account of their ethnicity, regardless of whether they're trusting in Jesus or not, just by warrant of their ethnicity, all Jews will be saved. It's like they have their own track, their own route to salvation It doesn't matter if they're trusting Jesus personally. And for evidence of that view, people would point to verse 28. Just look at it with me. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And so some say, option one, all Jews are saved, will be saved, just on account of being Jewish. Option two says, no, hang on, Uh, it can't be that. Um, we've seen that the only way to be saved is to call on the name of Jesus, but this says that the whole Jewish nation is going to turn to Jesus in the end. So there's going to be a kind of mass turning, not necessarily every single Jew, but in that final generation, the majority of Jewish people will turn to Jesus. 
Now, there are variations on that, but that's the kind of second big category. And it's good to know there are folks in Chalmers who would hold that position. And be reassured, um, just over half of the commentaries in my office <laughs> hold that position. Bible-centered, Bible-believing uh, Christians hold that view. Um, that's option two. And then there's option three. Um, this is the one I, I've landed on, um, which is to say all Israel, in verse 26, talks about the whole people of God, both Jew and Gentile, Everyone who's trusting in Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. So that's to say that I think like Colossians 1 or Ephesians 3, if you're writing notes, the mystery here has to do with the way the gospel of Jesus saves both Jews and Gentiles amazingly into one family. Now just before I go on to explain why I think that, let's just pause to ask, what kind of controversy are we dealing with here? How stressed should we get about this? I think it depends. See, if you're just dealing with the difference between option two and option three, the answer is there's nothing central to the gospel at stake here. So I may not be persuaded at the moment that, of the second option, that there'll be this mass turning to Jesus at the end. But I might be wrong. There's nothing in Scripture that rules that out. It's not unbiblical. It's not anti-gospel. In fact, we do know from verses 11 to 14 last week that Paul does definitely expect some Jews to turn back to faith in Jesus. Um, so I have absolutely no qualms sitting side by side in, in fellowship at church with others who, who hold that view very sincerely. Um, and actually, we'll see in a moment that either option two or option three will humble us. They'll leave us in the same place, marveling at God's grace to Jesus. But when it comes to option one, things are much more serious. Seriously wrong. You see, to suggest there's an alternative track to salvation is to undermine everything Romans has been saying to this point. I can understand why some people want to say this, and, and let me be clear, given the horrors we've seen committed against Jewish people in the last century and the ongoing problem of anti-Semitism in sectors of our society even today, I absolutely share and, and affirm the desire to respect the dignity and value and worth of every Jewish person. Especially as Gentile Christians, actually. We should never kind of talk unkindly or unlovingly or proudly to Jewish people. In fact, we're going to see later, we have every reason to be thankful for the Jewish nation. In lots of ways, we're joining their story. The Bible story is theirs. But to suggest there are two tracks to salvation, one that ignores the cornerstone that is Jesus, that that is denying Romans so far. After all, Romans 1 to 3, who needs the gospel? Everyone, both Gentile, chapter 1, and Jew, chapter 2. Or chapter 10, we, we saw a couple of weeks ago, God saying again and again, calling on the name of the Lord is the only way to be saved. Or, if you want persuading. Just think about Paul. How does Paul feel when he's thinking about this issue in chapters 9 to 11? Well, he told us in our first reading, chapter 9, verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I wish I could myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He's not sitting there thinking, well, it's all going to work out in the end. It doesn't really matter if they trust Jesus, they'll be fine. 
Now, chapter 10, verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for his Jewish friends and family not trusting Jesus, my prayer is that they may be saved. Paul's in anguish because he knows there's only one way to be saved. Same with Jesus. If you remember Gethsemane last week in the morning, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But there isn't any other way. The cross is the only way for a righteous God to deal with unrighteous sinners in a righteous way. So I hope we can see option one just can't be right. Let's not go there. There can't be two tracks to salvation. It's not a kind of Jesus one and a Jewish one. That would deny the whole of Romans. As our key verse of this year puts it, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So, it's not option one. Um, But what about option two and three? Well, actually, both of them recognize Jesus is the cornerstone. Um, uh, But I do think it's option three here in Paul's mind. And the best way to see that is to get a run-up of what he's been saying in verses 11 to 24. Um, so verse 25 flows straight on from the picture he's just been given. Let me read verse 25 and 26, and then we'll go back to a recap from last week. So verse 25 is the mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Now, if you weren't here last week, it's worth going back to listen. This will be quite a high-speed recap. But I'm going to summarize what's been going on in chapter 11 with some pictures. Um, So from verse 11 onwards of chapter 11, Paul's been asking, does God have any greater purpose in Israel stumbling over Jesus? It's a shocking thing that when Jesus came to God's people, they rejected him. And actually, we we saw in verses 8 to 10, God hardened their hearts. And was his only purpose for them to just fall flat on their faces in final judgment, the kind of game over? Paul says, verse 11, by no means. God does have a greater plan, but it is a mysterious plan. It's not the kind of plan you'd make up if you were jotting it on the back of an envelope. It works in three steps. And those verses down the side of the times, you see this same pattern in the chapter. But here are the three steps. Step one Israel mostly rejects the gospel of Jesus. That leads to the gospel of salvation being driven out, which means many in the nations respond to the gospel and are saved. That's how the gospel gets to Scotland, for example, by the gospel being driven out of Israel. We should be grateful for boxes one and two. But that, crucially, is not the end of the story. A proud Gentile might think that, that it's all about us, But no, the the, the process carries on because the Gentiles being saved in turn leads to envy in Israel, which leads to more from Israel being saved in return. Now that process is definitely going on, whatever you think all Israel means in verse 26. The only difference really is whether box three is an ongoing thing happening now or a kind of final end day mass turning. Sometimes, if you look at verse 26, sometimes people say that 
Verse 26 must be talking about the nation of Israel that's rejecting Jesus at the moment because verse 25 was using Israel in that way. And how could Paul change the definition of Israel in one verse? But my answer to that would be at the start of the whole thing, chapter 9, at the start of the argument, Paul said already there's more than one way to define Israel. So 9 verse 6, I'll put it on the screen. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. That's how Paul began the argument. He's already said not all Israel are Israel. He's, always, he's already distinguished two Israels, an Israel of promise and an Israel of the flesh, the bloodline. That was chapter 9. You might say, well, that was a long time ago. But just before our verses, we've had the picture of an olive tree. And if you're zoning out, hopefully this olive tree will, will get us back on the page. Certainly, Paul, it's very helpful to give us an illustration to get a picture to get our heads around. This is a holy tree. It's rooted in the promises to Abraham, the root, the, the kind of bottom trunk is the, the patriarch's um, but he has said that branches can be taken out of this family tree and other ones grafted in. Let me put that up uh, on the picture. Um, so Jesus, the cornerstone, arrives in the nation, and that causes a great split in the tree. When he comes there is a remnant, a small subset of the nation who believe in Jesus, people like Paul. We, we saw about them in the start of the chapter. But actually, the large number refuse Jesus. So this is worth watching the screen for to see what he's saying has happened. They refuse Jesus and are broken off. Verse 17, broken from the tree. Then God, amazingly, spliced in wild olive shoots. He grafts in Gentiles. Verse 17, you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, now sharing in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Now, the reason why the woods are different color there is because those people do not belong naturally. That's us. We're not naturally included in Israel, in God's people. We're considered children of Abraham purely by faith, by God's gracious inclusion, grafting us in. That's how we can be seen children of God. Why is Paul explaining this? Why does he want us to get our heads around this, even though it's a bit of concentration on a Sunday night? Well, because Gentile Christians, which is most of us in Chalmers, we need to have the right attitude to Jewish people who are currently not trusting the Messiah are currently hard to the gospel. See, it would be so easy to be arrogant, like verse 19, and say this, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. I mean, God headhunted me, got rid of them, had to make space for me. No. Paul says it's true, branches have been broken off, but not because you're something special or have done anything better. They were broken off because they refused to trust the cornerstone. That's how much the message of Jesus actually matters, the pivot of everything. Verse 20, they were broken off for trusting themselves, not Jesus. So don't we dare to start doing the same thing about ourselves, to think there's something special about us. 
But perhaps most important of all, as we come into our passage, look at verse 23. Paul thinks the story is not finished. Verse 23, Jews can be regrafted into this tree. Verse 23, even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you who are cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Or in other words, don't give up on them. Don't proudly give up and say, well, they're never going to accept the gospel. So again, on the diagram, the great hope is that there will be a regrafting of some Jewish people trusting the Messiah. That's what Paul's just been saying before we get into verses 25 and 26. And then Paul says the mystery, I think in summary of all of that, the mystery here is the way in which God is saving all his people. What is the way? Well, this absolutely extraordinary process, this three-step process that we began to see, this interweaving of the history of Israel, disobedient Israel, with the disobedient Gentiles to save loads of people by his mercy. And actually, I think the more we think about this plan, the more extraordinary and astonishing and amazing it is. Um, I know for lots of us, we're not very familiar with Romans 11. We maybe haven't spent much time thinking about this. Um, the more you stop and think about it, the more amazing it actually is. Let me try and put some more pictures up to, to explain it. Um, so firstly, uh, let's think about uh, the Gentile nations. Is there any hope for non-Jewish nations in this world? Well, yes, but bizarrely, the hope is from God's own people rejecting Jesus and that then throwing um, the salvation out to the nations. What a strange way to save people in Scotland. That's what can cause people to be grafted into the tree who aren't from the Jewish nation. But then let's do it the other way. What about for Israel? So is there any hope for these broken-off branches currently separated, having denied the Messiah, these friends and family of Paul that he's so anguish, in anguish and prayer for through the section. Well, yes, verse 12, through their trespass, salvation came to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And if their trespass means riches for the world, that's us, the nations, if their failure means riches for us, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Paul thinks there's a, there's a, there's a way back. He thinks that the Gentile nations are going to play a role in saving more Jewish people. Verse 14, he says he magnifies his ministry in order to make some of my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. It's extraordinary, really. I think the idea is that local church communities are to become so attractive that they cause others, even others from Israel, to long to turn back to Jesus, the cornerstone to be regrafted into the tree. So, lest be, we be wise in our own sight, we Gentiles should realize the story didn't begin with us. The story doesn't end with us. We're a link in the chain of God's extraordinary plan to interweave the rebellion of two different people groups to save many. Many. 
Now, you may have specific detailed questions about that. Feel free to grab me afterwards. I'm very, very happy to, to or email me. I'm happy to chat about some of the details. Um, but we've got to move on, and we're going to move on to our second point, which really begins to kind of bed this home on kind of ground level. If, if you feel like your head's spinning, hopefully this will help. Just look at verse 30. I think this is an ongoing process that's happening at the moment. Um, verse 30 just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, that's you Gentiles, so, verse 31, they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. So again, there's a hope now that actually people will be grafted back in from Israel rejecting Jesus. That actually fits when we get on to um, chapters 12 to 16. We're going to see how much it matters how a church lives together. We're supposed to be an attractive community, supposed to be a, a welcoming community, a humble community. We're actually supposed to show that it, in the, the church of, of Jews and Gentiles, um, what God's people were always supposed to be, a loving community, fulfilling the Torah, love your neighbor, in a deeper way than was ever possible before the Spirit and the Gospel, and to be more welcoming, because we've been welcomed in the Gospel, and to, and to live lives of greater worship than just sacrificing animals, whole lives, whole bodies. See, the church is built upon the promises of Abraham. We're grafted into Israel. But the way God saves his people is absolutely extraordinary. Let me just flick on for a sec. Oh, hang on, going the wrong way. That all Israel that will be saved is this, this whole combination of a remnant of Jews who trust Jesus, Gentiles grafted in, and some Jews regrafted. And the way God is doing it is by boomeranging out the gospel, as someone described it to me this week, using the rejection of Israel to send the gospel global and using envy and jealousy to bring the gospel back to Jacob, to Israel. It is mind-blowing, God's sovereign architecture in salvation. And it is a reason not to be proud Let me read verse 30 again. For just as you were one, at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So here's the amazing thing about this plan. And if you've zoned out, come back for this, this bit. Whichever branch of the tree you are, there's a reason to be humble and actually a reason to be thankful. Let's just imagine three different Christians sitting in the church in Rome. The first, um, let me skip through this. The first Christian is part of the Jewish remnant. So this is a Christian who, who never, never turned away from Jesus. Jesus turned up, the promised Messiah, and they put their trust in him. Paul now counts himself in this remnant, the believing remnant. 
Well, Romans 11 started in verses 5 to 6 reminding us that the only reason there was a remnant in Israel, the only reason there was that thin branch still remaining on the cornerstone, trusting in him, was God's grace. It was mercy that he kept for himself, um, kept for himself a remnant, a people. It was by God's mercy. That's the reason he stands. That's the first branch. What about the Gentiles being grafted in? What should they be thinking about, kind of how they ended up sitting in a church in Rome or in Scotland? Well, they're not even naturally part of the tree. They've come from a life of disobedience and rejection. In fact, far from looking down their nose at God's, uh, uh, Israel's failure, this person should recognize how merciful God was, was to use them to get the gospel to him or her. That's the second branch. But then... Um, and that's how we got in. Then what about the third branch? Some Jews who've been regrafted. Again, massively humbling. Verse 32, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. This person sitting in the church can't say, well, I'm from the pure race. They can't say, well, I've never rejected God like those Gentiles. Now, you see, every human being who gets saved by Jesus enters through the door marked mercy. That's the genius of the way God has saved. None of us deserve to be here. None of us have a greater claim on God's goodness. All of us depend on someone else to get us in here. All of us depend on God's grace to pull us out of disobedience. It is really, really amazing. I know it's a lot to get our heads around, but, but the more you stop and think about it, the more amazing it becomes. And Paul does really want us to stop and think about it. Let's just jump on um, to his praise explosion at the end. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who's been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's just pause and think, why is it that Paul is so in awe of God here? Lots of reasons, actually, if we've understood chapter 11 and actually the Romans so far. Firstly, this plan is so generous. I wonder if you've thought how many times God could have given up. See, he could have written off Israel entirely after, after chapter 10, not bothered with a remnant. Or he could have had a remnant and said, to hell with the rest, like, literally. Or he could have written off the entire Gentile world, I've got my special people. I've got a plan to save them by mercy. And to be honest, the wider world doesn't care a bit. They're suppressing the truth. They're rejecting me. They'd rather choose their own God, build their own God. He could have been so much less generous than this plan. Striking. I think we often come to God's sovereignty in salvation thinking he's being a bit stingy. Have you sometimes felt that? 
coming to him, to him with the question, well, why haven't you chosen that person or that person? Really, the question is, wow, how did you save anyone? Having seen people reject his son, the cornerstone, as we go on in Easter and see what Easter actually involves, well, extraordinary generosity, abundant riches of kindness to include anyone. And of course, he covers the cost for us. That phrase, who has ever given a gift to him that he might be repaid from him and through him and to him are all things so rich in mercy. Secondly, though, it is just really clever. Like mind-bogglingly, astonishingly clever as a plan when it comes to deciding the best way to run the universe. I hope we realize that God operates on a different level. Verse 33 puts it like this. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? I love that last question. Who's ever given him advice? When did God ever call in the management consultants because things weren't quite working out how he wanted It's a funny question, actually, because we do sometimes like to give God some advice, don't we? As if we know better from our tiny, limited slice of time, our finite perspective, what he should be doing. As if we know what's right, righteous, better than him. But the reality is we would never have come up with this plan. We would never have come up with Easter as the way to save. We're not righteous enough to care about sin. We would never have come up with this interweaving of Jews and Gentiles to save them through Jesus. Who would have thought it? As as Stephen's getting stoned in Acts 7, or Paul's being driven out of town after town by by, um, Jewish mobs who are incensed at what he's preaching about Jesus. Who'd have thought it that the plan was on track? That given a few more centuries, God would have used those events to bring in people from all over the globe, even here, even us, as well as bounce the gospel back to save Jews through the Messiah as well. It is mind-boggling. Just think what kind of knowledge you'd need to be able to conceive of a plan like this and be sure it works. Knowledge of every human and their thoughts, knowledge of every event, every future um, event, In fact, control of the plan. Not in a way that renders human beings incapable of making choices or or unaccountable for our actions. But nevertheless, just like we saw with Joseph in Genesis, working through their evil choices, often their outright rebellion to God, opposition to God, to nevertheless bring his salvation plan to many. It's mind-boggling. Put it another way, what kind of wisdom do you need to work through a special people group, a chosen race, but to work salvation in such a way that in the end, they are on a level with others saved into the church, that Jews and Gentiles could have no way to boast in the end that the church has no special seats, that no one can say, well, I'm from good stock. 
God has saved us in a way where there's no reason for pride, or at least no reason for pride in ourselves, amazing reason for pride in God. Just think of the turnaround from chapter 1 where all humanity was, was suppressing the truth against him to now uniting Jews and Gentiles in praise of his mercy. And finally, what about his sovereign, glorious power? Do you remember where we left God at the end of chapter 10? Do you remember that? Um, I don't think it's on the service sheet. If you've got a Bible or a phone, you're welcome to look, but I'll read it out to you. Chapter 10, verse 21 of Israel, God says, All day long I've, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. We saw uh, in chapter 10, the camera was kind of looking at Israel, uh, and God was pleading with them to trust in Jesus, to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And if you pause the film at, at, at the end of chapter 10, it looks like God's trying his best, holding his hands out. He looks a bit like a kind of harried dad on the school morning. He's de- and yes, this is personal experience. He's, he's desperately trying to get the kids to, to kind of pack their bags and listen and get to school, but it, it's just all in vain. I mean, what can I do all day long? They just won't listen. He looks weak and ineffectual. And actually, that is the view some people carry around, even Christian people, carry around in their head about God. He does his best, you know? He he offers us Jesus, but really it's up to us, and we frustrate his plans, and he he won't overrule, he, he won't step in, he can't step in, he's limited himself. No. That is not at all where this section leaves us. Before that chapter, we have Romans 9, where we see that he is merciful, sovereign, faithful to his promise to save people that he chooses. And now in Romans 11, um, you see he's, he's patient, not powerless. Romans 11, we're seeing how he's interweaving the rebellion of disobedient Israel and the rebellion of disobedient Gentiles in a powerful plan to save many. Extraordinary, that. He can, he can work through the opposition of his creatures to save them by mercy, to graft them into his people. It is absolutely amazing. By the end of Romans 11, we've seen that God has saved us by mercy alone. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God to save everyone who believes, first Jew, then Gentile, and both are humbled by their place in the plan. And it's that gospel of mercy, that wise, wise gospel of mercy that can actually shape us into all the things that Romans is looking for. So this kind of confidence in this gospel of grace and mercy, that is what will lead to a life of worship, all of life worship. Because when I see how good God has been to me for nothing that I brought to him, What other response than a full life of worship? Chapter 12, verse 1. In view of God's mercies, therefore, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And of course, that mercy will lead to all types unity. Because whether it's the big division, Jew and Gentile, or any of the smaller divisions that are more common in our churches, the kind of class or culture, job spec or education, clothing, Singleness or marriage, 
all types unity, because we're all saved by God's mercy. And finally, all nations witness. Of course, we should never skip a door on the street of our neighbors as we try and love people and, and share the good news with them. And that includes Jews and Gentiles. It includes every nation that we would share the good news with. See, this gospel grows God's church. Let's pray. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.